the new Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. I set up New Money Review in 2018 to cover the changes in money, which are getting faster, more chaotic and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Cryptocurrencies are incredibly volatile. Some are scams. But are others true stores of value? Could the technology behind cryptocurrencies, called blockchain, herald the biggest changes in accounting for five centuries and a new era of transparency in doing business? Payments get faster, cheaper and digital. But cash is still there and in demand, especially amongst criminals. And where does all this leave our traditional money, our dollars, pounds, euros and yen? Our podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each week, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. If you enjoy this New Money Review podcast, please like it and share it with your friends and network. Your recommendations make a big difference to us. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Kathleen Moriarty, who is a senior counsel at a US-based law firm called Chapman. We've seen a dramatic crash in the cryptocurrency markets over the last couple of weeks, with Bitcoin falling by more than half in price from the peak it reached in April. Other cryptocurrency tokens have dropped by even more. It looks more and more likely that the last year's cryptocurrency mania and subsequent crash will go down as one of the great financial bubbles in history. So what comes next? Well, we're not here to give price forecasts. But one increasing certainty is that governments are going to regulate cryptocurrency markets, including the exchanges involved in cryptocurrency and the various product providers much more closely. And it may well be that the past history of the US share market, in particular the boom and bust of the 1920s and 1930s, can serve us as a helpful guide for what may lie ahead. And Kathleen is one of the best people I know to speak about this subject. Kathleen, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you please start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Uh, Thank you, Paul. I'm happy to be here. Um, I am a securities lawyer, uh, kind of by accident. Um, I started out as a municipal bond lawyer, which is a kind of securities lawyer. Uh, and uh, did some very interesting things as a municipal bond lawyer, including uh, write a memorandum about whether the World Trade Center could be sold or not, which was a great interest at the time because it was uh, built by bonds. Um, And then I became a unit investment trust lawyer, which is a a kind of uh, 40-act lawyer, and then um, moved one way or another into... um, ETFs. I was the uh, lawyer that helped put together the Spider Trust. So my nickname the first, the, actually not quite the first ETF because I know that there were there was one in Canada before, but it was the, the first one that, that grew to become famous. Yeah, and the first U.S. ETF. That's first right. US ETF. There were yeah. predecessors in Canada. Yeah, and uh, and so my um, nickname became Spider Woman, and ever since I've been involved in um, ETFs which also brought me to um, Bitcoin because um, I was involved in uh, the Winklevoss's attempt to create an ETF made out of Bitcoin. So I now do both ETFs and Bitcoin, uh, which is kind of a weird combo. (laughs) 
Well, great. I mean, they are, having covered ETFs myself in the past, I'm, I'm aware that many people in the market I used to talk to have switched to, to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and some have made very successful careers out of it already. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting transition. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask you, Kathleen, if you wouldn't mind to go back in history, uh, 80 years to the early 1930s. And I know that the securities law and the law for investment companies in the US was written after the 1929 crash and the great, and during the Great Depression in the case of the Securities Act. What, what, was, what, what impact did the, did the crash have on the way that the law was written uh, regarding both securities issuance and the and the way investment funds are structured? Well, prior to the crash, there had only been state securities laws. And of course, being state securities laws, each was different from the other, and some were more aggressive than others. And it was a big patchwork, and it was you know, hard to enforce, and it was kind of a big mess. So after the crash, uh, it was clear something had to be done, because basically the securities law marketplace was the Wild West. Uh, anything that you could imagine horrible that could be done would be done. I mean, people were, you know, um, literally stealing people's assets. You know, brokers were stealing people's assets. Investment funds were um, uh, preferring themselves to their customers. So they would take the good securities and give the bad securities to the fund. I mean, you name it, they were doing it. it it's sort of hair raising when you read the history of, of how bad things really were. So as part of the New Deal, uh, it was decided that something had to be done on a federal level. So it's actually kind of complicated. The, the U.S. securities laws are complicated. There are four main securities laws. Three of them are basically regulatory. Those regulate the investment company, which would include you know, mutual funds, money market funds, ETFs, closed-end funds, that kind of thing, anything to do with the fund. Um, Another regulatory uh, is the 34 Act, which regulates brokers. No, no, they can't anymore steal people's money. No, they can't lie about what it is that they're doing. Um, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, which is kind of the same thing, that the advisor is really there for you and they're a fiduciary for you, not the other way around, which is how it was running before. And then the last, probably most famous um, and earliest of the securities laws is the 33 Act, and that really is a disclosure law. That requires issuers to talk about things, you know, truthfully and not hype them or hide them or, um, you know, distort what's really going on. So those four things are major things are, are the uh, way the securities laws work now. And... Um, the difference between the one I just mentioned, the 33 Act, let's say you're a car company and you're issuing new stock. You put out a prospectus to sell your stock. You basically just have to talk about what it is you're doing, how you're doing, you know, limited amount about your prospects of the future, but pretty much oriented towards today. Your financials have to be done a certain way. It's all truth and what's called sunshine in disclosure. If you're running a, an investment company like an ETF, you have to do all those things. You have to have a prospectus that does all those things. However, in addition, you're much more regulated. The car company isn't told how many swaps they can have in a particular time or something like that, whereas the investment company is told 
you can only do this and you can only do this at a certain time and in a certain amount. So it's much more restrictive, much more regulated. And most securities lawyers, when they come up with a new deal, somebody comes up with a new deal for them to look at, they say, let's try to stay out of the 40 Act because the 40 Act is so restrictive. Right. Now, so I'd like to, the way, the way you described the Wild West, uh, you know, pre-1929 uh, kind of reminds me of what we have seen over the last few years in Parts of the cryptocurrency market. I wouldn't say all of it, but uh, before we before we come on to that, I'd like to ask you about ETFs uh, briefly because um, ETFs had to get, a, as far as I understand it, they had to get an exemption from the way the 1940 Act was written in order to grow. And of course, they've grown hugely and have become a multi-trillion-dollar business. Uh, yeah. Uh, please, please explain you know, what, what you needed to do to well not to get around the rules, but to to to, to create ETFs. Again, um, it's highly regulated. So uh, spiders wanted to basically both have a continuous issuance and redemption. That is, an, on any day, somebody could create or redeem a block of, of um, uh, securities. And they wanted the individual securities to trade on an exchange, like the New York or the Amex or you know what have you. And the 40 Act didn't permit that. The 40 Act said you either had to be a closed-end fund, in which case you traded your shares on the exchange, but you didn't issue continuously, or you were like a mutual fund where you issued continuously, but you didn't trade on an exchange. And we wanted to do both. So there were other more technical things that had to be done as well. But that was that was the main driver. The, the, the structure was illegal, basically. So we had to go into the SEC and ask them if we could do what ETFs do now, which is do both. And in so doing, you're right, we had to get an, uh, an exemption order. And to get an exemption order, what you basically have to do is go into the SEC and explain to them what you want to do, why you want to do it, and why it doesn't cause a problem under the 40 Act. Because basically, you know, the 40 Act was adopted to cure all kinds of problems. So you have to show that your structure is not going to cause those problems, and therefore you're deserving to be let out of this, you know, the sequence. And okay. that, and the SEC wanted to. to ha- the SEC had the interest of the, the the retail clients in mind. They wanted to make sure that the consumer was protected. Right. That's yeah. right. And then, in addition to that, which is not so much talked about, but on the thirty four act side, which is the trading side, the trading division wants to make sure that whatever it is you're going to be doing doesn't goof up the market, doesn't somehow, you know, open it up to fraud or you know, skew it in some bizarre way or cause a valuation problem. So the 34 Act people were involved as well. And that's, and the two of them together, you know, came to the conclusion that things seemed to be copacetic. So that's how we, that's how we got that permission. Now in the Bitcoin arena, Bitcoin aren't securities. So they don't, they don't get to be part of an investment company. They can't be a mutual fund or an ETF or anything because those things can only hold securities. They can't hold commodity. Well, they can hold a limited amount of commodities, but they can't hold something like Bitcoin. So you're out of that whole picture when you start talking about cryptocurrency. But they can't, I, I'll come into this in a second, but I wanted to ask you what the um, implications of this legacy are, this you know, new, new Deal era, Roosevelt era uh, federal law for the development of the I don't like the phrase digital assets because assets are digital anyway, but either the token business or ICOs or whatever you want to call them, DeFi, this this new wave of experimentation that's uh, happening around the world. Right. What about them? Sorry, Paul. 
what's the, so what's the, what are the implications for the development of this business in the US? The, the, ah. the, the, the existence of this law, I mean, it's clearly there's no, I'll, I'll come on to the US ETF in a minute for, you know, potential Bitcoin ETF, but, uh, but the, you know, has, has this uh, federal law impeded the development of ah. digital assets? Good question. Um, in addition to the statutes that I mentioned to you, the other part of U.S. securities law is case law. And yeah. case law comes up a lot when, you know, you've got something new and nobody, it doesn't quite fit into anything. And so you look at the statutes and you say, huh, it kind of looks like this, kind of looks like that. And, then, and people start fighting about whether it's this or that and they go to court and, then, you know, they get a decision. There was a case in the 40s about uh, a bunch of people who owned uh, interest in an orange grove. And um, it's called the Howie case. You'll hear about it. Everybody talks about the Howie case. And basically what it boils down to is the Howie case, people were saying, we don't own securities. We own a bunch of oranges, you know, and orange groves. We own land and, and orange groves. And the court basically said, well, if you look at what you own, you actually own a contract where people come in and they plant the oranges and they spray the oranges, they take care of the oranges, they pick them, they sell them, they give you the money. Really, you're investing in an enterprise yep. that you know, buys and sells oranges and you're making a profit. So that is an investment contract. That's a security. Yep. So one of the big questions was, and it is Bitcoin or other crypto assets, is it a security? Yeah. And basically what you do is you look at the Howey case and you look at the SEC has now published, I think, about 50 different questions that you might want to think about when you're trying to assess whether a particular, because everything is fact oriented. It, you know, each thing has to be analyzed on its own. So you look at, you know, you look at X whatever and you say, you know, uh, are there people investing this for money? Is it happening? Is the, the appreciation or whatever the capital gain or the distribution or whatever coming out of this thing? Is it coming as a consequence of other people doing the work for you? Um, or is it, you know, somehow really a utility? And in a, in a way, the best two examples, the best example of what's not a security was something called, um, it, it involved Co-op City, for any of you New Yorkers who know about Co-op City. It was a group of people who got together to to create some housing when housing was scarce, reasonable, at a reasonable price. And so they created Co-op City, they bought shares in a co-op, and they lived in their apartments. And someone said, wait a minute, this is a like a Howie thing. Um, they're investing in apartments. And the court said, no, they're living in apartments. This is utility. So the, the, the opposite of um, an investment contract is a utility contract where you're, you're doing something, you're creating a token, whatever, for use. It, ha it has a use as opposed to being done to appreciate. So that's kind of the two, the two extremes, if you will. Right. So up to now, the regulators have said Bitcoin is, is clearly not a security. It's not an enterprise. Ethereum, maybe more controversially, was a, they judged also not to be a security. But the types of ICO tokens that were being promoted in 2017 and probably some of the things that are going on at the moment, they are going to be judged as enterprises of some form or another. And the regulators will come after people, if necessary, several years down the line to, to find them if they, if they break the rules. That's right. And that probably, yeah. that, that um, 
analysis will probably hold for a while. Um, right. You know, I mean, it may hold forever. Um, but I, you know, that's I think pretty well established right now. So if you're going to do a crypto something, you need to go through. You and your lawyer need to go through that analysis. Okay. So what? Turning to the Bitcoin ETF. Now you you said it can't be done under the Investment Company Act, but it could be done as a as, as the in the way that a gold ETF was done. Is that is correct. that uh, is that right? That's so correct. why has the SEC taken so long to to um, approve that, and it still hasn't approved it? Well. Remember, uh, first of all, when we, you know, the, the first attempt was in 2013. And I mean, I look back at that now, and I mean, so much has changed. You know, in those days, there weren't any custodians. You know, we were going to create our own custodian. There weren't, you know, banks wouldn't touch it. Banks wouldn't even talk about it. I mean, it was a very, it was very, very, very wild west. Since then, obviously, more and more people have piled on. They're a lot more institutional players involved, a lot more interest. Um, the SEC is concerned about putting something out into the market that will have bad effects, either on the individual investors in that they won't understand it, they'll invest and they'll get burned, or it'll have bad effects on the market itself. You know, it'll either... Uh, help fraud or, you know, um, skew the market in some way or allow insiders to manipulate it in a way that's not very clear. And I think part of that is because, the you know, the technology is new. It's not like anything else. So I, I think they're, they're, they're being very cautious. They don't want something to – and if, if, it, if it affects the market, it could then spread to other parts of the market. Right. Yeah. So, so then you'd have a complete disaster where you'd have, you know, stocks being somehow messed up. So I think they're, and I'm not saying they're saying that they're looking at that. That's what they're concerned about. Yeah. It's not that they've come to a conclusion, you know, but that's what they're looking at. So it takes a long time to try to assess how a brand new thing that's never been done before is going to act. Yeah. But in the absence of their decision, uh, uh, you know the, the the kind of the mingling of the traditional market and the the new cryptocurrency market is happening anyway anyway isn't it because you've got companies yeah. saying they're buying bitcoin for their treasury reserves you've got banks now custodying bitcoin and there's a whole lot of uh, banks trading bitcoin they're all coming all the ones that said they didn't want to touch it when you started are now rushing to get into it right now, is there is there a uh, is there a risk that the sec is just being being kind of left behind by the by by free enterprise and that people are just doing what they want and uh, kind of going ahead with it. No, I don't think so. Because again, they're really concerned about the retail investor. You know, their point of view is if, if you're a big guy and you buy something and it burns, that's your problem, you know? So they're really looking out for the, for the retail investor. Um, and that's why it's taking so long, I think. Um, but they're cons- it's it's not that it's sitting around. I mean, they're actively, you know, and as you know, I think there are, I've lost count, I think there are 10 different people who are trying to create an ETF. So yeah. they're busy. Do you think a Bitcoin ETF would be such a big thing? I, mean, I sometimes think, you know, why do you need an ETF wrapper to put around it? I know you would, that's the only way you could buy it in a retirement plan. But, uh, you know, is it, would it be a, as big a success as the gold ETF? Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because originally it was so hard to buy Bitcoin, especially if you were a retail person that the ETF really made sense because it was yeah. an alternative, you know, 
nevertheless, I think a lot of people are familiar with that wrapper. It does make it easy, um, makes it easy to, you know, account for, makes it easy to watch. Um, so yeah, I do think it will be, I think it will be big. Um, and, and looking at the, the technology underlying these new um, tokens, um, cryptocurrencies, and other other digital assets, you know, how big a, in your opinion, how big a, an invention is this? You know, what, uh, uh, I'm talking not, not just about financial markets. You know, is it something that you think has much broader implications for society? Well, I think the underlying blockchain does. Um, and it's it's already being used in a number of non you know non Bitcoin non non ETF type ways. I mean, uh, for instance, being used as a method of um, uh, accounting for land records instead of having instead of having a you know uh, a land office record place where it's all on books and you have to look it up. You know, there are places now that are that are recording everything on a blockchain and it's it's you know it's it's safe it's secure it's quick you can find it easily it's made it's efficient so and and there are many many uses for blockchain so you know apart from the the economic or the monetary so i think yes i think that will that's a big invention i think so we need to maybe try and separate that from the the more speculative aspects of these booms and bust cycles that we, we, you know, we see in cryptocurrency. Yeah. And if you, and if you type in blockchain rather than Bitcoin yeah. or, you know, digital assets, if you type in blockchain in the Google, you'll get a lot of information about how it's being used um, creatively, you know? Yeah. Um, what, you know, we talked about U S law. How does this then fit into the global picture? Because there is, Markets in the, around the world, particularly the Far East, China, Hong Kong, um, Korea, you know, where, where the amount of money that's been made in, in cryptocurrencies is, is huge and the, the exchanges are now processing, you know, enormous volumes. Uh, is there a kind of geopolitical angle there that we need to think about the competitive angle between competitive, uh, um, or the comp- competition between the US and other countries? Clearly the US is the, in the, in the traditional markets, is, is you know, still by far the largest equity market. The dollar is the world's reserve currency. How do you see the global picture evolving? Well, from a lawyer's point of view, it's um, very complicated because, of course, yeah. each country has their own rules and um, they differ. In fact, some countries don't permit or, or they go back and forth. You know, they'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll uh, halt people being able to buy you know, cryptocurrency, and then they'll allow them, or they'll allow some and not others. Um, and so cross-jurisdictional, it's it's very complicated. From a geopolitical point of view, it's kind of like a reset, right? I mean, we dominate the equity markets because basically we started out first. Um, I mean, not that other people didn't have stock markets, but, you know, we were the largest market at the time it's hard to know how it's going to yeah. how it's going to work out um and i think the money will move wherever you know wherever it's best to go so yeah yeah one thing that really caught my attention in in, in recent weeks was the, the the move by binance the uh, the the well uh, the exchange of no fixed abode apparently but it's uh, <laughs> chinese owned as far as i can understand um to, to start uh, trading 
stock tokens. So people don't even have to leave their Binance account. They can just go from Bitcoin into Ether or Dogecoin or whatever they want, and then into Tesla tokens and uh, I think Apple and Microsoft tokens. This seems like a quite a clever idea, but it's got some regulators worried in other countries. Uh, yeah. The German, the German regulator had something to say about it because there was a, the, the, I think the underlying shares were being held in Germany. But that's, I thought that was a very interesting uh, move and it's you know, one to watch. It is. And I think you'll see yeah. other things. I think you'll see other innovations. I do. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, I can't imagine what they are <laughs> because if I were, I would be doing. <laughs> but um, yes, I, I do think you'll see, and it won't all be from here. That's for sure. Um, Let me ask you about stable coins uh, because with those, that's also an area of the market that's been growing very quickly, and the the, the largest stable coin has grown from I think three billion dollars to over fifty five billion in just over a year. So it's a it's a dramatic uh, increase in assets. Now, how significant an invention do you think stablecoins are? I think probably less inventive than blockchain, but uh, they, you're right. They certainly have garnered um, a lot of assets, and they, they will continue to, I think. Um, you know, people, like, people like what they have to offer. So it's, um, it's another innovation. Right, and so so what what uh, challenges does that pose for the U.S. regulators for the Fed? Because you've you've now got this digital dollar token being exchanged on people's phones all around the world in in you know real time and uh, with effectively real time settlements. It's it's I mean in theory these stable coins are backed by dollars held in held somewhere, but they're they're right. kind of they've they've escaped the you know, they're, they're kind of outside the control of the of the of the Fed. So. Um, now, is that something that you think is top of their minds, or is it still making its way out the agenda? I, th I think the Fed. I think that I think the Fed is looking at them, and, and don't forget, the Fed is. I mean, I haven't read anything really recently, but you know, the Fed is supposedly you know working on digital currency for us. Yeah. So you know, then they're going to have to also think about well, how is that interrelated to the other to the stable coin and you yeah. know that just makes one more additional thing they have to think about i think um and you know regulators are always worried when an exclusive bailiwick is you know all of a sudden capable of being invaded if you will by somebody yeah. else you know they worry about their system and, and what they're what's going to happen to their system yeah um Kathleen, could you explain the difference between um, – you mentioned earlier that securities law and investment company law was uh, not centralized, but it was uh, it went from being state-issued to federal in the 1930s and in 1940. Right. Is, it, is it still the case that banking law is very much state-based in the U.S.? And if, if so, what implication does that have for the, the way that the, the token and, the, let's say, the custody business is evolving? State – uh, sorry, um, banking law is kind of um, interesting. It's different than securities law. Well, it's the same in that there is federal and state banking law. Mm. But the difference is that the state banking law is quite robust, unlike what it was in the securities law with the blue sky laws. So if you have a federal bank, a federal chartered bank, then you have federal law applied to you. But if you are not, if, then you're a state bank and you have state bank banking law. And uh, that tends to be pretty rigorous, um, similar to the federal law. It's, it's not a you know poor sister. So it just depends on what kind of bank you want to set up 
and you know where you who you want to who you want to regulate you. Um, as but we've yeah. seen some some U.S. states states striking out to you know to to try and um, you know to to to, build, to get a lead in um, maybe custody digital assets. Wyoming has has introduced laws that uh, seem kind of far reaching in that area, whereas in the past I think New York has had kind of a, a fairly conservative and, and restrictive approach. Do you have any thoughts on the way different states are approaching the, these topics we've been discussing? Well, I think it's what you've just said. Um, New York is very strict uh, and very um, uh, administrative. You know, there's lots yeah. and lots of lots and lots of things you have to do, things you can't do, a very, a very kind of traditional approach to, to banking um, in, in the Wyoming situation, you're right. It's, it's much more casual is not the right word. I mean, the regulators care about what they do, but it's not as restrictive. It's, it's, it's more, it's more, um, tell us what you're doing and, you know, we'll think about it kind of thing. Whereas New York is much more, we'll tell you how you have to, how you have to set up and how you have to act. So it's, um, and you know, the different states, depending on their, their makeup will <laughs> choose one or the other. I mean, you know, it's probably not, it's probably biased, but I guess I would say that I would expect Western states to be more permissive and, <laughs> and Eastern states to be more traditional, you know, now that could be completely blown out of the water, but, but yeah, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if that happened. And, and and you, Kathleen, your 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 clients in this area. You know, what 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 range of clients have you been working with, or are you working with? And you know, what what's, what what uh, types of law do you find most exciting and most uh, interesting at the moment? I'm I'm actually pretty much still doing what I've always been doing, which is ETFs and and Bitcoin related things. I'm not doing. I've never done an ICO because any ICO that ever came in, you know, failed the test. So we were never able to do any ICOs. Um, and I have not been doing a lot of other related digital asset work recently. Um, but the securities laws I just find fascinating. Uh, you know, and it, it sounds like such a dull subject. Um, but there's so many implications for people's personal lives, for the economy, for uh, as you say, for the, the success of a state, you know, a state enterprise, the success of a country, um, you know, how they can damage each other. Uh, it's a pretty interesting area, actually. Kathy, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. I enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website in the right column. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.